Hello, today is March 15th, 2019. This is Perspective from Politics NC. I'm Kirk Kovac here in Carborough with Thomas Mills. Thomas, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Kirk? I am doing well, as always. And this week has been an interesting one. Uh, North Carolina, once again, has been in the national spotlight because of this uh, emergency declaration the president had signed about the the border crisis. And Tom Tillis, one of our senators, was iffy about whether or not he was going to vote in favor of or against a resolution. Uh, Let me make a correction there. He was a definite... um, for the resolution blocking president's uh, emergency action. He became iffy uh, a few minutes before the vote. Right. Well, yeah, what I was going to say, he he was in the Washington Post, uh, February 25th, I think he wrote a column, an op-ed about how he was definitely going to vote to protect the Constitution, and, and it was his role to stand on principles. And, of course, after the specter of a primary in the Republican Party, he, he flipped that vote and, and he ended up siding with the president. So what are your thoughts about that vote and what led up to it? It was, I mean, it was pretty stunning because Tillis wrote, or let me rephrase that, somebody wrote for Tillis an op-ed that quite clearly laid out the conservative position against um, Donald Trump's emergency declaration. The declaration is almost certainly um, unconstitutional, and it's also uh, it's an overreach of of executive power. And Republicans have been forever talking about we need to reel in the presidency. It was one of their main drum beats during the Obama. Uh, administration, but now that Trump's there, they're just bending over for the guy every every time he wants to do something. So Tillis's Tillis's op-ed was 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 very uh, clear that he opposed it and uh, why he opposed it, and he said it's an easy vote for him because he was voting on his principles. Well, nothing changed. The only thing that changed was Tillis's position. So. The guy, the guy just rolled over. It was, it was one of the most spineless um, episodes I, I've ever seen. It was fun watching what conservatives said about him. Uh, Jay Nordlinger, who's a National Review editor, uh, referred to a a, a a tower of jello, and but his his first tweet was weasels, 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 and and John Podhoritz wrote that. Uh, he had never, rarely have we seen a more weaselly move. You know, it, it was, um, it, it was, it was pretty wild to watch. Jennifer Rubin of the Washington Post called it breathtakingly uh, cowardly. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. The I guess he was more scared of a of a primary from the Trumpists than he is a general election. I mean, that's that that's all. I can figure. Well, even though this is specifically Tom Tillis in North Carolina, I think only like a dozen Republican senators joined with the Democrats to oppose the the president's emergency declaration. And there were a couple prominent what I think at least they portrayed themselves as, as very principled conservatives who, who did vote the same way as Tom Tillis. Like, uh, I know Ben Sass 
from yep. Nebraska, I think, who was supposed to be this paragon of constitutional yeah, conservatism. They lost. They lost. They've lost any credibility on being constitutional conservatives. That that's that's out the window. Any of those people who voted along those lines, they they can't make that argument ever again. Well, and I think he even. I don't know what it was verbatim, but he went as far as to say that I think it would be the the right thing to do it to vote against it, but because the Democrats are playing politics with it or something to that effect, it was like, well, if if the principles only matter when politics aren't involved, then they're not principles. Yeah, I, I saw I saw conservatives blasting Sass too for for his vote. So, you know, I mean, pe- people who really stand by their principles, people who are true conservatives understand that this was not a conservative vote and uh and they're and they're blasting them you know it it gets back to to something though that i've been thinking about um lindsey graham uh is blocking a, a a resolution to allow mueller's uh to 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 make mueller's reports public past 420 to nothing in the house and and one senator is, is blocking that, and I, I think really, and people are going, why are you doing that? Well, it's the same reason Tillis just just uh, made made himself out to be a liar. I think both Tillis and uh, Graham come from wings of the Republican Party that no longer have any power. They they were kind of business friendly, moderate Republicans. I mean. You know, Lindsey Graham was one of the main opponents to to Donald Trump when he ran, and then when he won, nobody switched as fast as 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 Graham did. And what I think both of them realize is they can't win primaries, and in their mind, it's better for them to be elected to office than it is to have any principle at all. Well, it is it is kind of stunning to see because this, even though every day feels like a hundred when you're following the news cycle closely that really wasn't that long ago oh it's terms, not it's just a few years ago how adamantly opposed so many of them the establishment types were against donald trump and, and now they're just obsequious and and it reminded me a little bit seeing how it seems like they're putting polls over principles is is the way i wrote in, in something that i put together but it, it reminded me of something that Bill Buckley wrote right when he started National Review, which is sort of coalescing the conservative movement behind principles. And I thought this quote was interesting in today's terms. He's, he wrote in 1959, our political economy and our high energy industry run on large general principles and ideas, not by day-to-day guesswork, expedience, and improvisations. And I thought that sounded like a really good definition of the Trump presidency. It's just day-to-day. There's no right. undergirding principles. And I wonder what that portends for the party after Trump is gone. Like, obviously, he'll have an influence still, but when he's not the president, what does that party stand for? I don't. I don't think they stand for much anymore. And and besides winning, besides winning, and I, I don't really know. I don't know where it take. I mean, it, it. I think it leaves us in a in a in a bad place because uh, you know I don't think most most Americans stand with where the extremes of either party are and and nobody seems to be stepping up to fill in the middle that might be able to attract some of those republicans moderate republicans into the democratic party um that said there, there are there are some very huge barriers to uh true conservatives ever 
working with, with Democrats, but they're almost as huge barriers to true conservatives working with the populist Republicans that, that now make up the Trump party. So, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's going to be a whole lot of left place for conservatives to go after this. Well, we talked about because of his vote uh, on this issue and because of the specter of a primary, do you feel like Tom Tillis has solidified enough support that he won't be primaried? No, I, my guess is, is he's made everybody mad. You, you can't write something and then just go, ah, change my mind. I mean, that was a national publication. And what he did is he lost any credibility he's got with organizations like the Washington Post. And while I know the right wants to, to, to diss any sort of the mainstream media as being liberal, you know, the, the Post and the Times um, and, and uh, a few other publications are, re- are writing real news and they're writing facts. And, and I think what, what Tom Tillis just did is he put himself in a position that he'll never get listened to anywhere other than uh, Time magazine. And I think that the, he's never going to satisfy his right flank because of what he's done throughout his career of, of kind of dissing them and being a, 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 a trying to portray himself as more moderate. And now he's lost the respect of, of uh, moderate unaffiliated who might have thought that this was a guy who stood on principle. So I don't, I don't think he helped himself. I think what he really did is he opened himself up, not to a primary maybe, but to a serious general election challenger challenge but Democrats have got to find a qualified candidate to run against him. Well, that that was the next place I was going to go with it. It seems like there is a lot of focus on this race for obvious reasons, and he had one of the narrowest victories in a Senate race in North Carolina. Um, and there's no clear person to step up on the Democratic side right now. Do you have any insight? Maybe not a name, but at what point do you think it'll become clear that somebody's going I, to I can't. I, I have to believe somebody's going to emerge to run against this guy. I, I think he, I think after today he is very badly wounded. Um, the, the, the attacks for flip flopping are going to crush this guy now. And, uh, um, I, I just feel like somebody in, in, in the next few months will emerge. I, you know, we, we get so, so fired up about these races and people think that we need to have somebody now. And there is, there is the, 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 the trouble of raising money, but you know, the world changed money. It, it matters to show that you've got credibility and, 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 uh, that you, you've got support and, and to attract money begets money in, in these races. But the reality of it is, is there's a lot of dark money sitting around to support Democrats as well as Republicans. And if you had a really super talented uh, candidate out there who wanted to get in and got in late, they're not going to lack for money in a, in, a, in a primary. And the primary is a year away. I mean, if nobody emerges between now and June, it's not too late. So, Well, with this whole debacle over the vote, Everybody's been focused on Tom Tillis because he's the one up for re-election. But I, I thought it was interesting. You have Richard Burr who's been there forever, and he did not have to worry about facing repercussion because he doesn't want to run again. So what do you make of, of his vote in support of the president? You know, I, Rich, Richard Burr's never been a real bright guy. I mean, he, I think he's done a relatively good job uh, as far as, as, as his place in, in – uh, the Senate goes, but 
you know, he's he's been up there a long time. He's never really reached any sort of, you know, he's, he's head of the what Senate Intelligence Committee, which is which is a, a nice job. But nobody's looking to Richard Burr for uh, any sort of intellectual um, or, or or philosophical direction. I mean, this guy just kind of he. That's who Richard Burr is. He, he he goes along to get along, and uh, he doesn't he 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 doesn't have any real ideological underpinnings one way or the other. Well, switching to more local issues, um, for Raleigh at least, Mayor Nancy McFarland uh, came out earlier this week after some speculation, but she's not going to run for re-election, which opens up that Raleigh mayor's race to a lot of potential candidates. Um, what are your thoughts about her? tenure as mayor and and maybe I know part of the reason she left is because of the environment has gotten kind of nasty in the city council but uh, just what were some of your thoughts about Raleigh as a whole politically well you know I, I watched Raleigh started really growing fast um in in the really the 80s and 90s and uh when it first took off there were a lot of Republicans in control we had uh, a mayor Tom Fetzer over there and and those Republicans uh, they believed in in little regulation. Back when in the '90s, there was a big fight about what they called smart growth principles, and 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 Republicans pushed back against it. You had a ton of urban sprawl. You had a lot of traffic problems. You you know because they didn't want to make investments, they tried to st- stay away from any any uh, regulation. And when when Charles Meeker became mayor uh, before Nancy McFarlane. It began a new path for Raleigh. They started putting uh, money into downtown. They reopened Fayetteville Street. They uh, uh, it 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 became a place. It became a destination, and a lot of it had to do with pushing for the the whole smart growth principles of density. So you you, you had you started building walkable communities. You started having businesses downtown. I remember I remember. In, in the 80s and early 90s, it was kind of like last person to leave downtown, turn out the lights. Nothing happened. There were no restaurants down there. There were, weren't any bars. There were, they were around NC State, and there were some out in North Raleigh. But the downtown area was pretty much dead. And, and you've seen the development of downtown Raleigh, Glenwood South. You know, it's been a remarkable transformation, and it's been under the leadership of, of – uh, of Meeker and then Nancy McFarland, they've done a they've done a remarkable job of making it a world class city. They brought the she I think the Bluegrass Festival came in under her. You know it's 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 become a destination. Um, she'll get credit for Dick's Park. It it's going to be she's going to be seen. Her legacy will be be seen as as a as a uh, leader in a tra- at, at a time when Raleigh was really being transformed. Um, and, and I guess the big question is, is do, do we continue on that path where, where we see uh, the development of downtown, um, you know, or, you know, the, 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 the issues facing Raleigh, there are a lot around transportation and, and, and affordable housing and kind of how are those addressed as, as the city continues to boom? I did want to mention and here if you wanted to talk about this article you wrote the other day about unpopular opinions I think particularly as a Democrat those opinions were unpopular and you listed a few maybe hobby horses you had um yeah I I just I've been watching the uh um Omar and uh Ocasio-Cortez um 
shots. I mean, the, look, both of them seem to, to, to trigger conservatives. They get bent out of shape and upset. But at the same time, I think both those women are, are very talented, but they're, they're, they're very, also very young and somewhat naive, as far as I can tell. They, they, what made me write that is one of the things I did is I went back and looked at a lot of the stuff um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez said, and, you know, they just weren't true. Not a little bit, a lot. And it's not that she's intentionally lying. It's that she's ill-informed, and she needs to learn to, to hold her fire. She is very talented. She could be a major leader in, in the party for a long time to come. But she would, do, she would be wise to, to sit back and, and learn a little bit. I, I got to say, it, you know, it, it probably surprised her as much as anybody that she got the attention that she got so fast. And, you know, not only can it go to your head, you also just have to learn how to adjust to it. People sticking microphones in your face all the time. Uh, and and Omar, Omar's comments... I thought she handled them pretty poorly. I thought Democrats handled the censorship of her pretty poorly. Um, or not censorship, but rebuke of her comments poorly. And and uh, they need to do a better job of understanding other perspectives and understanding that they're no longer activists. They are now elected officials, and they represent a lot of people who have a lot of very divergent views. And... Um, it's, it's a different role that they play. So I, I just felt like both of them need to sit back a little bit and learn. Um, look, we see this all the time. I mean, I, I was talking to some legislators in North Carolina who say that there's a similar thing going on in the general assembly that, that, uh, uh, a lot of the, 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 the freshman class is big and bulging over there among Democrats and somebody, the way they put it, it goes, for some reason, they think we're in the majority. We can't really do anything. Our job is kind of to stop everything, and yet um, they, they're they there to transform um, the politics, and, and they will. Just like, I mean, we've seen this historically. I was also reading what I wrote about the, 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 the class of 2010 of Republicans that came in. Man, they came in like like bulls in a china shop they were breaking everything thinking that they they had the answer to everything and they they had to cool off over time um you saw it in in 1994 the class of of republicans who came in 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 1994 in in uh um both congress and in in uh general assembly they had a lot of ideas that did not go very far but uh I think all of these Democratic freshmen will will get their sea legs and, and understand they'll have a different perspective five years from now than they do today. But both neither one of those two freshmen uh, will will face much of a challenge unless it's from a primary. I think a lot of it as well is transitioning from being the center of attention when you're running in, in your campaign to being, I don't want to say a cog in the machine, but you, you, you play a role in a very large, you know, democratic majority in the house. So not everybody can be the speaker of the house and everybody has to play a role within the majority and you have whips and everything. There's a structure and a hierarchy. And some of the younger people I think come in and feel like they've got just all the power in the world, but you, you have to play a role within the party, I think. And right. they're, they're figuring that out. And it doesn't help that they're in a very 
ascendant, different sort of wing of the party that might not mesh well with most of them that are sort of moderate Democrats that won in suburbs. Right. But that'll be interesting to see. Uh, final thoughts, because we're running out of time. Uh, a few more people announced or said they weren't going to run, but I, the biggest one was Beto from Texas. Do you have any thoughts on him? He said he is going to run, though. Yes, yes. Right, Sorry. right. Um, I spoke. Yeah, well, uh, I don't I don't have a whole lot of thoughts. I, I'm just more reading what the pundits say, and, and surprisingly, this morning I woke up and Josh Marshall over at Talking Points Memo said that uh, – that it was a disappointing launch for Beto. And, and I read something else that said uh, a lot of the journalists are going after Beto. And and I, I don't know. I mean, it looked to me like it was a pretty good launch. But um, I got to say, I thought the, uh, the the Vanity Fair article about him was, whew, it's kind of hard to take. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was too gauzy and, uh, you know, it, just it almost seemed it almost seemed like a fawning article um and and i may maybe other people read it differently but he said i was born to be in it i thought man that's gonna come back to bite you if you think you're born to be in politics that's not you know (laughs) at the time when americans are not real happy with politics and politicians that's a that's a hell of a statement he is very interesting as a candidate, and I think a lot of people on both sides are too quick to either heap praise or completely discount him, but he has something very intangible, I think, especially when he's in front of crowds. So I'm not saying he's got a, a profile that's that's fascinating, but there's also the question of what order the primaries are in, and I think Texas is on Super Tuesday, yep. so... If you can get through those first few elections, he could be in a good place, and I'm sure he'll have a lot of uh, success in grassroots fundraising. Uh, last question. I think a lot of people haven't addressed this so much. Um, I've seen more of it now, but do you think Bernie Sanders is the front runner right now? No. I, ignore the polls. Ignore the polls. Ignore the polls. Any poll particularly a national poll, but, but any poll anywhere is, 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 is little more than a name recognition poll. Most people aren't sitting there dying to see who's going to run. They don't know who Kamala Harris is. They don't know who Beto is. They, they don't know who any of these people are. So when you ask them, they know who Bernie Sanders is and they know who Joe Biden is. Right. So they're going to be the front runners. So, you know, um, I mean, according to the Republican polls, uh, Four years ago, the 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 uh, Rudolph Giuliani was going to be the Republican nominee. Um, everybody, we got so many candidates that everybody's going to get their moment in the sun. And at the end of the day, we're going to have about four standing going into Super Tuesday. They're not going to have the right resources to, to compete, um, you know. And if if you want to put money on a few of them right now, I think. Kamala Harris is the one I would put money who's who's one of those four. I I, I feel certain she's going to be. Um, Joe Biden, if he runs, he'll be one of those four probably. Um, Beto, it's like you say, he's got intangible. It's hard. It's hard to pin down. He's he has some some qualities that that seem to be remarkably well suited for the political 
environment today. Um, and I, I think it's too early to tell, but I think we'll know we'll, we'll know in about three months whether he's one of them or not. Most of his money is going to have to come from low-dollar uh, grassroots operations, and, and if, 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 if that, we see those, that money flood into his campaign, he'll be there too. I don't know who else is going to be there, but I'm guessing it's going to be around three or four people standing going into Super Tuesday. Okay, well, we've gone a bit longer than we usually do, but I think we had a pretty good conversation, and we'll see where things are next week when we reconvene. If you enjoyed what you heard, politicsnc.com is where we write about this and more. We have a candidate tracker for 2020, so you can find out who's running and who's not. And uh, be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this. Thomas, thank you, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks a lot, Kurt.